Our reading this morning is our scripture passage. It comes to us from the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance for you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in in the defense and confirmation of the gospel." For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. As he read, you see that we're going to be in Philippians. And if you have your bulletin, you can see that we're going to be in Philippians until about Advent. We'll have one week in between the Philippians series and Advent. So if you have your Bibles, open up. We're going to camp out in that first part of the chapter. If you're new here, welcome. I'm new too, so you're in good company. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have these verses that I read up on the screen for you. You know, it was, it's a big decision trying to think, what am I going to have my first series at Orlando Grace be in? You know, because you don't want to pick a book of the Bible that's overly controversial. There's a reason people don't start off typically with 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. And, but you want it to be really accessible too. So this is why people generally don't start off with Revelation and Daniel. And so as I was looking at the, the available books of the Bible left Philippians really just kept on rising to the top because it's not overly controversial. It's very accessible, but it gets to the heart of the Christian hope as well as any letter or any book that I know of in the Bible. So I landed on Philippians. And if you grew up in the church, you've you've been around the church for some time, Philippians is one of those, those letters that is very familiar because it's filled with what we've come to call as coffee cup verses or t-shirt verses. You know, the, the type of verses that are so famous, they find their way onto trinkets in the Christian stores. Verses like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Or, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then the ever famous, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you were in youth in the church, you have a shirt somewhere with that verse written on it. But what can be lost in the familiarity of many of these passages is the deep pain that people on both sides of this letter are experiencing. Because we know Paul is in chains in Rome when he's writing it, and he's writing it to a church that's beginning to experience significant persecution because of their faith. And as we read this letter... Not just looking at the famous verses, but really reading it. This letter feels different than a lot of other 
letters written by Paul. I mean, you look at 1 Corinthians, and, and they've messed up so many times, he, he just keeps coming after him, and it feels like Paul's just looking for something to praise. Just give me a reason to say something good about you, Corinthian church. And many of you parents might know what that feels like. <laughs> and then you go over to Galatians, and Paul has no praise for the Galatians at all. Things have gotten so off course. But then you come to Philippians, and there is just this deep, unshakable joy that Paul seems to be experiencing as he writes them. And in our passage today, the passage that Mike just read, we see that joy manifesting itself in the form of this deep affection that Paul has for the Philippian church. We see it right off the bat in verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayers with joy. And then again in verse 8, he says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, this is the kind of affection that some people might think is weird. And Paul goes on to say, it's right that I feel this way. And you know, as I've, I've gotten the chance to kind of be in, in the back row these past few weeks, it's been easy to see that this is an affection that this church knows. <laughs> this is an affection that you have for Kurt. This is clearly an affection that he has for you, and it's an affection that I can see between you. And as a new pastor, I can say that this is an affection that, that Angela and I are excited to be able to cultivate and develop with all of you. So for me, the very first question I want to ask in this passage is, how do we develop this kind of affection? This kind of affection that, that Paul has with the Philippian church and an affection that I would say our culture pushes against increasingly and makes it more difficult for us to experience. Many of you know that Angela and I lived in Italy for five years, and I began to notice about probably 18 months into my time in Italy that like clockwork, every time I would come back to the United States, every time I would re-enter, two things would happen. First, I'd have to relearn personal space. Inevitably, I'd be in a line and my nose is like six inches from the person in front of me and and it would really weird some people out. So I I had to relearn that personal space. And like clockwork, the second thing that would happen was that I would get lonely. Every time, I would get really lonely. It took me a a while to figure out why. In Italy, you could take the place we lived, the entire population of Maitland, and we would all fit into one city block because it's so urbanized. There were people above me, people below me, people on the other side of the walls, people in the hallway, people in the stairwell. Everywhere you walked, there were people. All the the buildings were very small, so shopping, you were crammed in the same spot. I know that sounds terrible to some of you introverts, but to an extrovert like me, this was a dream. And then I come back to America. I'm in my home. There's nobody besides my family. There's nobody outside the walls, nobody above me, nobody below me. If I want to go someplace, I have to get in my car alone. And then I go into a big building where we can all spread out and don't have to talk with each other. I don't see anybody on the way back. I come back into my neighborhood. And if anybody does want to hang out outside, they go to the backyard so nobody can find them. And I begin to experience loneliness. Because that's the culture that we live in. And I'm saying this for a reason. Because if we want to pursue the type of affection that Paul has for the Philippian church, we're going to have to understand it all the more clearly, and we're going to have to fight for it all the harder. Because our culture does not facilitate it. And then our culture comes in and makes us feel, you know, through social media like we are connected to all these people and have all these great relationships. 
But we know that's not what Paul's talking about here. So I want to look at this passage and I want us to see two things. I want to see where this affection comes from and what it produces. Very simple. Where it comes from, what it produces. So first, where does this affection that Paul is feeling come from? It comes primarily from two things. Loving Jesus and laboring together. Those are the two things. First, we're going to look at loving Jesus. Somehow, you know, Paul says here that he yearns for the church with the affection of Jesus. So somehow the way that Jesus feels about his church is the way that Paul feels about the church. So the question we need to ask is how then does Jesus feel about the church? Because that's the kind of affection that Paul's talking about here. And if you read the Gospels, all the Gospel writers use one word more than any others to describe the way that Jesus feels about it. And do you know what it is? Compassion. Compassion. Over and over you see Jesus interacting with people and the author says, and he had compassion on them. And it wasn't an ordinary compassion. It was a compassion that serves instead of judges. It was a compassion that gives instead of takes It was a compassion that offered grace to every single person who asked for it. And it was a compassion that allowed him to love well beyond the limits of any of us to continue loving people. This is how Jesus felt for his church. This is how Paul feels for the Philippians. And it's how we're supposed to feel about each other. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Because we have Jesus who has merited nothing but heavenly reward with his perfect life. And his compassion leads him to give up that life on the cross and take on the wrath of God that all of us merit. And in turn, we get everything that he merited. I have no idea what all that is, but everything the perfect son of God merited when he went to the cross to take our punishment, we received all that merit. His compassion led him to trade places with us. And as the gravity of that sets in, And we experience that kind of compassion from Jesus Christ giving us everything he had so that we could experience everything that he earned. That then develops the same sort of compassion inside of us to everyone else. That's why Paul can say he's experiencing the affection of Christ to the Philippian church. It's also why Paul doesn't talk about a generic godly affection. It is an affection that only comes in Jesus Christ, the affection of Jesus Christ, because only Jesus Christ could reunite us with God. Only Jesus Christ can offer us this kind of compassion that will overflow in us with compassion to other people. And so an important question comes up here now. Is Paul saying, or is Jim saying, that Christians always love people better than non-Christians? No. I can, I can think of people who are not Christians who just blow me away in their ability to love other people. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is that when we experience the compassion of Jesus Christ, whatever our human limits are to love, they're exponentially expanded. Our capacities to love are expanded when we love Jesus. That's what this is talking about. And this is one of the reasons why Christianity is such a diverse religion. You know, in the first century, people couldn't help but stare at Christianity because it looked different. It was the only organization, the only group that was made up of all types of people. You had wealthy and poor, free and slave, male and female, Jew and Greek. 
And people were asking, how did this happen? And it happened because they had experienced a compassion that overflowed inside of them that became more important than class, race, ethnicity, or gender. Loving Jesus. Loving Jesus, the compassionate one that brings us compassion, overflows within us for other people. That's the first step to experiencing the affection that Paul's talking about. But it doesn't end there. Because we all know you don't just love Jesus day one and immediately love all Christians around the world. You, know, you don't even get along with everybody in your church right away. There are still people who really irritate us in the church. So that's, it can't just be loving Jesus. There is another component And it's laboring together. And we see it here in the way that Paul writes it out in verse 5. He's talking about the affection and he says, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day until now, they have partnered in the gospel. So what does that mean? You know, we're not there. What what were the first days like? And, And what does the until now look like? We need to answer those questions to be able to understand what it looks like to labor together. And by God's providence, we have all that information in Acts 16. Acts 16 chronicles the beginning of the church in Philippi. So Paul is headed east with the gospel. And he has a dream. There's a man from Macedonia. And he tells Paul in the dream, don't go east, come west. And in one of the single most history-changing decisions in the history of the human race, Paul decides to take the gospel west instead of east. Can you imagine how much that changed the course of human history? So he goes west towards the region of Macedonia, and he has a particular target on the principal city in Macedonia, which is Philippi. And he arrives there with Luke and some other people, And they go out on a Saturday and they meet a woman named Lydia. And Lydia seemed to have some predisposition towards being open to God and open to Paul's message. Paul said, or Luke records, that she was uh, a trader of fine garments. So one pastor said, when we think of Lydia, we we should think of a fashionista with an apartment in L.A., New York, and Paris. That's Lydia. And Paul reasons with her from the Gospels, from the Scriptures. And she believes. And we have our first convert in Philippi. And then immediately after that, we go from one extreme to the other. We don't have a wealthy, independent, powerful woman. We see a lowly, possessed and oppressed slave girl. We see this young girl who's possessed by a demon and oppressed by men who want to make money off of her because she is somehow able to tell people things about their future. And she knew because of the demon inside of her what Paul And Luke were there to do. And she would follow Paul and Luke and the others and constantly just yell. Yell at them, mock them for what they were there to do. And finally, Acts 16 says that Paul got so annoyed. So I always think, I would expect more of a spiritual motivation from Paul than annoyed. But the Bible records things as they were. Paul was so annoyed, he turned around, not to reason with this girl, but simply to cast the demon out. And in an instant... The salvation that she had been mocking became hers. Convert number two. Then, when that happened, the men who were oppressing this girl got so irritated because they can't make money off her anymore, they had Paul and his friends put in prison. So they're in prison, and one night comes an earthquake, and that earthquake causes all the doors in the jail to open. 
and, and somehow all the chains to come off them. And so the jailer runs back to the prison. He sees the door open, so he pulls out his sword and prepares to fall on his sword to kill himself. Because in those days, if you lost a prisoner, you had to replace that prisoner with yourself. And Paul, seeing what he was doing, yells at him and says, Stop! None of us have left and none of us intend to leave. And the jailer looks at Paul, falls on the ground and says, What must I do to be saved? When Paul's writing from the first days, this is what he's talking about. You have a wealthy woman, a peasant girl, and an average Joe. And the Philippian church is planted. So what then is the until now part? For probably about 15 years. For 15 years, this church has believed the gospel together. They have declared the gospel together. They've defended the gospel together. They've reminded each other of the gospel. They've cried together. They've cheered together. They've prayed together. And all along, all of these things are what we call laboring together. They've done it for 15 years. Loving to Jesus and laboring together. And this is where this affection comes from. So as I'm reading this text... I'm thinking, what prevents us from experiencing this type of affection? And honestly, we probably could do a whole sermon series on all the things in our culture that prevent us, that push against this type of affection. But I simply want to point out two things because they're in the text. One has to do with loving Jesus and one has to do with laboring together. Two things that prevent us from experiencing this type of affection. And the first one, We need to ask ourselves, how are we when things get difficult? When when we start to experience the pain and the stress and the fear and the doubt of this life, where do we run for comfort? And, And I know I'm kind of foreshadowing the rest of this letter here, but this is the context. So where do we run for comfort? Because the Bible clearly says the only place that we can run to comfort is the comforter. The only place we can go is Jesus because running to anything else is coping with a problem, not dealing with a problem. Jesus is fundamentally different than everything else we might run to. This is the reason he tells us in Matthew, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we run to Jesus, we get so much comfort through his compassion that we actually, it doesn't matter how bad our pain is, we can overflow with comfort. We're able to minister to other people, give that comfort to other people, and the affection grows. Do you see? So if we run to Jesus when things are hard, that fuels the affection. When we run to everything else, we can run to alcohol, to pornography for our comfort, Or maybe more socially acceptable things. We can run to the gym. We can run to shopping. We can run to food. We can run to Netflix. There are all kinds of things we can run to for comfort. But they're not going to satisfy us. Because they're not Jesus. They're not going to have anything left over. We're not going to overflow from those things in a way that benefits other people in the church. And fosters this kind of affection. So the first thing that hinders our affection is that we... Run to things other than Jesus when life gets tough. Secondly, are we thankful for the people that we labor with? 
Are we really thankful? I mean, do we look around at the people who we're laboring with, the people in our church and think, I'm really thankful for you because I know I don't always do this. I was thinking this week, I've probably led about a dozen short-term overseas mission trips and inevitably there's somebody that I'm supposed to labor with that I'm not thankful they're there. You know, I, I think, God, why did you bring this guy? He talks incessantly. Uh, you know, or there's the girl who shows up to the airport with all her Vera Bradley luggage with no wheels on it. So I, I know how this is going to go. You're not carrying that luggage all through that country. And I think, God, I'm not thankful for that person right now. But 100% of the time, when I have asked God, make me thankful for this person, it's happened. I found ways to truly be thankful for them. And sometimes the floodgates open (laughs) and I end up really, really enjoying these people. So we need to ask ourselves, as we look around at the people we're laboring with, are we thankful for each and every one of them? Because clearly Paul is. He thanks God all the time and all his remembrance for all of them. That's the kind of thankfulness we need to be praying for in this church. Because God has ordained that when we experience this kind of affection, it's going to fuel our sanctification. This kind of affection is one of the main ways that God has ordained that he would change us. And that gets to my second point. What this affection produces. We've seen where it comes from. Now we're going to look at what it produces. It produces at least three things. Prayer confidence and fruit. We're going to break those down and be done. So first, prayer. So this passage actually begins and ends in prayer. And I wrote out an entire sermon on prayer. And I realized, uh-oh, prayer is not the main point of the passage. So the key to a good sermon above everything else is that the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon. And so I'm finishing up the sermon realizing the main point is not prayer. The main point is affection, and that affection overflows in prayer. And that makes sense, because we pray for the people we care about. You know, there's the old saying, you pray about what you think about, and you think about what you love. So really, prayer could be a very helpful diagnostic to see how are we doing in this affection for other people in the church. Ask the question, how are we doing praying for them? Do our prayers mostly focus on us and our family, or are we really praying for all the people that we're supposed to be laboring with? convicting diagnostic for me. So this affection produces prayer, and then secondly, it produces confidence. And here we get to one of these really famous verses in in Philippians, in verse 6. If you have 10 Bible verses memorized, I bet this is one of them. Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So what does Paul mean? Clearly, he's saying that God is going to save everyone who puts their faith genuinely in him. This is the doctrine we call the perseverance of the saints. All those who believe will persevere. But it's easy for that to simply be a doctrine on a page and remain head knowledge. There are things we can know, and then there's things, there are things we can experience. And what Paul is doing here, he's experiencing this confidence. This confidence in his own salvation, and I, I think clearly a degree of confidence in the salvation of the Philippian church. Because he saw God begin the work. Now, I don't know who in this room is a Christian or not. 
I'll never know. I can only know about me. But I can have a measure of confidence in those people that I labor with over a period of time. I have a measure of confidence in Michael Graham and my wife, Angela, because I've labored with them for years. Because when we labor together, we experience the gospel together. We're able to see God beginning a work that we know he's going to finish. And so what can remain head knowledge begins to sink deeper and deeper into becoming something we're experiencing. So why does this matter? Because it's not just a doctrine, not just some, something we have to know the right answer to. The truth is, the more confidence we have, the more joy we experience. And that's true in everything. The more confidence we have, the more joy we experience. I have a child who loves to play baseball. And he's also a little bit of a perfectionist. So when we began playing baseball, he was really worried, well, you know, what if I don't hit the ball? Or what if I hit the ball and don't make it to base? Or what if I, I, someone hits the ball to me and I don't catch it? Or what if I catch it and I don't make the throw? And he began to worry about baseball and it was just sucking all the joy out of it. But then as it turns out, he's actually pretty good at baseball. And soon his confidence began to grow. And as his confidence grew, his enjoyment of the sport grew. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. When our confidence is in the right place, our joy grows. If our confidence is in ourselves, in our ability to make a decision for Jesus, in our ability to maintain that decision, or in our ability to get somebody else to make a decision, and our ability for them to maintain their decision, then we will never experience the joy in the Christian life that we're meant to experience. We need to know deeply that it's God who initiates this journey, that it's God who completes it, and we get to be around to be helpful in any way that he allows us to be. Because if we think our confidence is in anywhere else, in our eloquence, in our walking an aisle, in our praying a prayer, in our getting baptized, then not only is it going to rob us of the joy that we should have, because at the end of the day, our confidence is now in ourselves, we're going to oscillate for the rest of our life between pride and despair. We're going to be prideful when we think things are going well, and we're going to be despair. We'll experience despair when we realize that we're not really killing it. But being in this type of community, it increases the kind of confidence that we need to have, that God's the one doing the work. And it allows us to be able to experience the joy that we're supposed to experience in the Christian life. All right, so the affection, it produces prayer. It produces confidence. And then finally, this affection that Paul's writing about produces fruit. What do I mean by fruit? Let's look at verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with, and here it is, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As we grow in love and compassion and affection, we grow in fruit. And I am defining fruit as the process of being conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. Because Paul says we get the fruit of the righteousness that we've been given. So when we believe for the first time we are declared righteous forever in God's eyes, then we begin this journey for the rest of our lives to make actually true in our lives what's been declared true the day we believe. 
And one of the main ways this fruit happens is from this affection. And if that's true, if the affection they're experiencing is causing the fruit that causes joy, that causes us to be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus, then there are two implications, and I'll finish with these. The first implication... is that community is necessary for fruit. If this is true, if fruit comes from the affection, then community is necessary for fruit. You put me on an island with a Bible, I will not thrive. And and it's not just because I'm an extrovert, as I said. You introverts, you may take a little longer, but you're going to wither too. (laughs) Because we were not designed to live this life alone. We were designed to be in community. And to the extent that we don't have community, to that extent, we will not experience the fruit that we're designed to experience, the fruit that Paul's praying for the Philippian church. And then second implication, fruit isn't simply knowledge. Fruit isn't simply knowledge. In Paul's culture and in ours, there can be this tendency on, on the extremes to have love Christians over here and knowledge Christians over here. You know, you have your, your love Christians. They're in the community. They're pursuing people. They're feeding the poor. But at best, there's fuzzy doctrine. At worst, there's false doctrine. And then on the other end of the continuum, you have knowledge Christians. And knowledge Christians can answer every jot and tittle of their doctrine. But there's no love. The very thing that the doctrine is supposed to produce And I heard one pastor describe it like a basketball player who makes 100% of the shots that he makes in a game, but they all go in the wrong goal. And so his team, he starts bragging to his team, guys, I'm 100% from the three-point line right now. And they say, yeah, but you're killing our team. And he says, yeah, well, I'm 100%. We can know 100% of the right answers and be killing our team. And this is what Paul is getting at. When he says that we are supposed to have love with knowledge and discernment. That's what we're going for. Fruit doesn't come from knowledge alone. I had lunch with an old RTS professor this week. Someone who I really respect. And he was kind of giving me the the lay of the land spiritually in Orlando. Helped me understand what's been going on the past. He's been here a long time. And he said, you know, Jim, it doesn't seem to me like any church in Orlando has, has solved the missional puzzle. That's what he called it, the missional puzzle. He said, I look at all these other cities, major cities, and I, I feel like I can point to a church here or there that's really understanding the missional puzzle. They're, they're, they're really making a difference. But he said, here in Orlando, I feel like I've got to choose between churches that have good doctrine, but that doctrine doesn't really affect anyone outside the walls of that church, or... A church that's really engaging the city, but their doctrine's kind of fuzzy, if it's there at all. And he's like, I'm longing for a church that can move closer to unlocking this missional puzzle, that maintains their solid doctrine and sees it making a difference in the community around them. And to me, it's interesting that he said that the week that we're in this text, because I think what Paul is praying right here for the Philippian church is the key to unlocking the missional puzzle in any context, that we pray that in this church, love would abound with knowledge and discernment. If those things happened, the missional puzzle's unlocked. I don't care about any, anything else that we do at Orlando Grace Church. 
Some of you, you know this affection well. I can see it. I know you've experienced it. You experienced it with Kurt. You've experienced it with each other. You are experiencing it now. And if that's you, and you're thinking, yeah, I do pray for the people I love around me. I pray for my church. I have confidence. By God's grace, I am seeing fruit. Then I'm willing to bet that didn't just happen. You fought for it. You worked to make that happen. You loved Jesus and you labored together. Because the people in Philippi, they lived much like the environment I talked about in Italy. You know, they, they lived all up on each other, on top of each other, in small areas. And then came the persecution that pushed them towards each other and they felt their need for each other in a way that we don't. So we have to fight for it more and that's the challenge. How are we doing in our affection for each other? How are we fighting for that affection? What's hindering us from experiencing that affection more? And all of us are different. Of course, I can't answer that for all of you. But I think we prof- would be profitable this week if all of us consistently prayed, God, am I experiencing this type of affection? Are there things I can do to foster more of it? Are there things I'm doing that's hindering it? And I promise you, that is a prayer that God answers. So I want to finish by doing exactly that. I want to pray that this would be true of me, the new guy, and all of you, between us, between you, and every dynamic in this church, that this would be an affection that defines Orlando Grace Church. Let's pray. God, we, we are so thankful that you don't just give us a list of to-dos. You give us things that we should do that cause us to thrive. It's not just things that we should do to merit your compassion. You bring us compassion so that we would want to serve you and in that service we thrive. There's a design. And I pray that we would understand that design and we would specifically understand the part of the design that has to do with our affection for each other, that you would foster it between us. For whoever's new in the room along with me, it can feel overwhelming sometimes to jump into a community that is so tight-knit, that has existed for so long. And I pray that you would open the doors for all of us. And I thank you that this is a welcoming church. I thank you for the people that have offered my family such significant affection right off the bat. And I pray that that would be contagious, that I would be better at offering that affection, that Angela would be better at offering that affection, that all of us, would offer that to every person who walks in these doors and everybody you have us interact with outside of these doors. And so God, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve, so that we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.